investing in property makes sense. Investing in the right property takes knowledge. Welcome to the Rewarding Property Decisions podcast. I'm Jared McCabe, Director of Wakeland Property Advisory. Join me for expert insights into the fundamentals, trends and opportunities to help you create long-term wealth through smart property decisions. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 57 of the Rewarding Property Decisions podcast. So I'm very fortunate today to be joined by one of Melbourne's best property lawyers in Justin Lawrence. Justin is a partner at Henderson and Ball and uh, they've had a, a very long-standing relationship with Wakeland Property Advisory over the years. We've uh, even shared the same building for a little while. So it's great to have you on, Justin. Thanks for joining me. G'day, Jared. Pleasure to be with you. So Justin and I do speak quite regularly, and typically it's all about um, any number of things other than property or law, mostly probably football. Um, but recently we were having a bit of a chat, um, and you mentioned to me, Justin, about restrictive covenants and how um, there's been a few interesting points around um, the residential property law speak, uh, and there's been a couple of interesting cases. So I thought that it might be something worth delving a little bit further into. So perhaps if just for the listeners, if you could start by giving us a bit of a background on restrictive covenants on certificates of title, what they are, how they work, and how they've developed over time. Sure. Thanks, Jared. Um, So a restrictive covenant is a document uh, which registers on the certificate of title to a property um, a restriction. uh, that specifically will say how a property can be developed. Okay. Um, a, a lot of them have been around for a while, um, and whether they've been around for a while or they're very modern, they still um, create problems uh, for property owners, and they're things that property owners should be aware of uh, before they buy. There's some really interesting ones over time, and I'm sure you'll be able to go into a few of those today, but some of them are quite, quite unusual. People would look at them and say, why the hell would you have that on there? But back in the day, it was probably necessary. Yeah, a lot of them um, are hangovers from literally 100 years ago. So as Melbourne was expanding between the wars, yep. uh, in particular in that sort of 1920s, 30s period, um, where prior to the Depression, um, there were a lot of new suburbs opening up. What was happening is um, uh, when properties were being developed and new tracts of land were opening up for subdivision developers were restricted in the way that the properties could actually be developed and used. And that's when a lot of the restrictive covenants went on and they still remain to this day and they will continue to remain unless they're actually removed. And is it difficult to remove them? It can be, yeah. There's only three ways you can do it. Um, The most difficult way is to actually apply to the Supreme Court for an order that be removed. Um, If everyone within the subdivision agrees to its removal, then it can be removed but it only takes one person to object to <laughs> yeah. the removal. So you can imagine that, that that's a, you know, a, a hard road to hoe for a lot of people, particularly with, um, Jared, as you know, so many subdivisions, there'll be literally hundreds of lots in yeah. the subdivision. And, you, and there's always going to be someone that's not going to agree to it, just yeah, even if it's yeah. just to be difficult. That, that's right. And, and um, uh, you know, in 2023, a lot of people say, what's in it for me? Yeah. And unless you can convince... Beryl living across the street that it's really in her best interest to remove this restrictive covenant, she's just going to say no. It's a bit like when uh, and we talk to clients, not so much because we haven't bought them, but converting a company share title to a strata title. It's in everyone's best interest because it's going to make the property far more attractive to more people. But for some people, no, we'd prefer to just leave it as it is. Yeah, indeed. And I'm, in fact, it's a good point. And I'm dealing with one of those as we speak where there is one owner who says no. And, you know, in fairness to him, he's owned the property since the original subdivision in the 50s. Right. And and he just says, well, I, there is no benefit for me 
to spend money converting this title now, so why would I? Yeah. And yeah, you're right. It's very much the same with restrictive covenants. All right. So what are some of the more common covenants that um, that we see, I guess, that, that have that started back in that sort of 40s, 50s era and some of the more common ones these days as well? Well, the older ones that are most common are single dwelling covenants. So those that say that you can only have one dwelling or one building apart from usual outbuildings. And outbuildings back then were thought to be, you know, the outside toilet. Um, so single dwelling covenants, very common. Um, uh, more common ones are, or equally common are those that restrict removal of sand, soil and earth from the land others that prevent industry being in residential areas uh, and others as well that um, uh, restrict the type and regulate the type of materials that are used in the construction of buildings on the lots. Um, now, those ones, the, the last ones that I mentioned there, the materials restricted covenant, they've made a bit of a comeback. I was going to say, that seems to be a bit more, some of the modern estates where they didn't want weatherboard construction, only wanted brick or something along those lines. That's it. Yep. Um, so a lot of the newer areas of Melbourne that are opening up. So if you go out to Tarnit and Gowanbrae and places like that, that are sort of on the on the urban fringe, you might call it. Um, when those properties are subdivided, the restrictive covenants want to regulate how the properties look. Okay. They want something that looks like an A.V. Jennings home rather than something that looks like it's a you know built like a shanty. Yes. So they'll say that you can't use corrugated iron or you you know you can't use older materials has to be new you can't have um, the garage sitting forward of the of the um, uh, house itself a fence can only be so high etc etc so they're the more modern sort of restrictive covenants but the older ones tend to be a lot more general in terms of as i say single dwelling um, removal of uh, earth and such from the from the property which is the interesting one and that's probably the thing that sparked our conversation recently was the um the, the quarry so to speak or the removal of um, earth and sand and soil from the land um which generally you'd sit back and think oh well that's not a big deal i'm not constructing a quarry but as you pointed out there's been a couple of instances now where people have wanted and a lot more with some of the inner city areas where people are looking to put um, basement car parks in and swimming pools so whether that actually starts to create some issues yeah, well, that's what we're finding, um, that people are um, signing contracts to buy properties thinking that, oh, gee, wouldn't this be great with a third story? That is a story underneath. Um, or wouldn't this be great with a wine cellar? Yeah. Or I'd love to put a pool in the backyard. Um, and then they're bringing to us the title and saying, well, here's my title. I need to apply for a building permit, but the council are saying I can't have one. Why is that? And we look at the title and sure enough, um, there'll be a a restricted covenant on there that says you can't excavate the land other than, for example, other than for foundations for for um, construction of, of a building. Now, digging out the backyard for a swimming pool will run foul of that, as will digging out the backyard for a wine cellar or digging out underneath the home to put in a you know an underground car park or garage. So Technically speaking, the language does not support that sort of development, even though when the restrictive covenant was put in place, that's not what they had in mind. What they had in mind was to make sure that the property wasn't actually used and turned into a quarry, as you say, Jared, rather than um, allowing for a swimming pool and a wine cellar, which 100 years ago, putting in a swimming pool or a wine cellar would have been like flying to the back end of the moon. Yeah. People would have gone, well, what are you talking about? You know, it's a, it's a home. I don't need it for that. So that was never the intention of the restrictive covenant. 
But if you look at the wording of the restrictive covenant in 2023, it's going to stop that sort of development unless um, council can be convinced that really there are other things at play that the restrictive covenant is trying to prevent. So there's been, I think you mentioned there has been some um, some test cases or they're in, in process at the moment. Is that right? In terms of trying to have them removed or make amendments to them? Yeah. So the, um, the most recent one of significance involved the city of Stonington, and that was, I reckon, late 2021. Okay. One. So it's within the last sort of 18 months or so. Um, and it was a restrictive covenant that dealt with um, the property um, being used um, to um, excavate, carry away or remove um, uh, land, um, oh, sorry, earth, marl, stone, clay, gravel or sand from the land. So there was nothing in there about um, quarrying. It was just the, the picking up and the removal of um, soil and the like from the land. So that's very specific. Um, yeah, yeah. So the owner said, well, look... Um, what I want to do is I want to, to dig out for a swimming pool. I'd like to be able to do it. And the council knocked them back and said, no, you can't because you, you uh, the restrictive covenant says literally you can't dig up and remove the land. Uh, oh, sorry, remove soil from the land. Um, and the owner, not surprisingly, said, oh, well, this is ridiculous. This has been on title yeah. for 100 years. You know, I really need um, permission to do this. Council said no. And he took it to the Supreme Court. And the the court looked at it and said, this is not a covenant that is specifically designed to stop quarrying. It is very general in its wording, as you pointed out, Jared. It's very general in its wording. And in those circumstances, we, being the Supreme Court, are going to have to be convinced that you should be permitted to dig out for a pool, given that the wording is very wide. Wow. Um, ultimately, the court gave them the order and, and allowed them to dig out for their pool. But the, the point about the case, and the reason this case is really interesting, is because the court really analysed the restrictive covenant in real detail and said, what was the intention of the covenant when it was first entered into? And the answer that seemed to be it was to stop next door turning into a quarry. Um, and would that objective still be met by the uh, restrictive covenant remaining in place? The court said in those circumstances it wouldn't, but it issued a warning to say if anyone just thinks that this is opening the floodgates, it's not because the covenant itself needs to be analysed based specifically on the language. Right. So I guess so if it had have mentioned the words quarry in the in the covenant, it may have been, a, a, I'm not going to say straightforward, but it may be a little bit more down that path. But because it lacked that wording, is that one of the main reasons why they were quite stringent? Yeah, it, it, in part it was. The quarrying was interesting because the judge mentioned that in his judgment to say, look, um, uh, I need to pay particular attention to what the wording is. Um, excavate is the word that's used and excavation is digging out. Yeah, yep. Um, now, the reason why this is a really interesting case is because the wording in this was a little um, less specific than typically what a quarrying covenant would, would have in it. Um, and it also did not talk about the exception being, which is typical, an exception being it's okay to dig out and excavate if it's for the purpose of foundations for the construction of a building. Okay. 
it, it didn't say that. So the, the judge was left to um, the wording in its sort of natural form, if you know what I mean. Yep. Um, and uh, ultimately, the judge said, look, I'm happy to allow um, uh, the order to be made that the the, uh, the digging out for the pool can be undertaken. But um, every single covenant will need to be looked at for its natural meaning and we don't want to delve too deeply into the intention although that is a relevant factor so there was layers to it a lot of detail um, yeah yeah huge amounts of detail and this is really where the warning sits i think jared as far as property purchases are concerned because those covenants need to be really closely analyzed with a view to even if i'm not thinking about undertaking work like that now if i'm thinking that it might be possible in the future is this the property for me knowing that that restrictive covenant is on the title? Or even, I mean, if you want to be really cautious, are you if you're purchasing it for a particular, even if it's not for you, but if, it, if it's something that you think the future purchaser may be looking at. So that may well restrict someone else being interested in that property down the track, even though you think, no, I'm not, not interested in putting a pool in myself. Yep. It's the sort of property that perhaps the next owner might want to do that and perhaps they'll look at it and say, yeah, we can't purchase this because it um, it's not going to allow us to do what we want to do. So I guess in terms of um, people being analysing things and lessons to be learned, what sort of things would you advise buyers to, um, to look for when they are considering and, and if they do have those sorts of constructions in mind for the, for the property? Oh, I think first and foremost... Um, a buyer should go nowhere near an auction or a private sale without first having the contract checked out. I mean, that's yep, sort absolutely. of the, the main theme and bottom line, isn't it? And um, uh, it, it, that's the first part of it. The second thing is try and um, uh, envisage what it is that you might have in mind in terms of development. As you say, Jared, think about how um, any covenant that's on title might affect resale value in the future. Um, it, it's a fairly easy thing to think about now to say, well, what would be a common type of development for a property like this? Well, could I bowl it over and build a new home on it? No, I couldn't because it's heritage listed. Yeah. Um, the second thing is, um, would I be thinking that if not me, then a future buyer might want to put in an underground garage because we're landlocked. We don't have enough room at the side of the house to put in the garage but we could put in the media room or the, you know, the theatre and the garage, et cetera, underneath. Would that be the sort of thing a future buyer might be thinking about? And thirdly, how is it situated in terms of backyard space? Because a lot of people now are looking to buy properties, pooling money with older parents and yep. looking to put in granny flats, for example, yep. or looking to put in the swimming pool. Not me, but maybe the next owner. Would it be affected by that? And if the answer is yes, then is this the property that's for me or do I move on to the place next door or up the street that doesn't necessarily have that covenant in place? So there's a fair bit to think about, but I think the bottom line is the contract has to be checked and proper advice on the covenant. Like the, the covenant, it's not the case of a lawyer or a conveyancer looking at the covenant saying, oh, by the way, there's a covenant. Yeah. It's, by the way, there's a covenant, this is what it says, and this is what the effect on you might be. Those things have to be in a buyer's mind, I think, before signing up. Just quickly, going back two steps, you mentioned the um, the granny flat. If you've got a single dwelling covenant on it, what does that do if you're intending to put a granny flat in the back corner? Yeah, well, that's why I mention it. Um, there's two two elements to that. One is the excavation covenant. Yep. Um, you mightn't get 
um, a permit to excavate for the construction of a granny flat. And typically, they'll dig into the earth a little bit, won't they, before yep. they build those? Yep. And the second thing is, um, uh, as far as a single dwelling covenant is concerned, it, exactly, it, that would be considered a second dwelling. And it might be that you say, oh, well, it's only just an adjunct to the uh, the existing home. I don't think that's the way a building surveyor would see it. Yeah. I don't think council would see it that way. And council would be pretty interested in, can we separately rate this? Yeah. So, <laughs> so they're, going to, they're going to be looking at it and saying, well, that, to our way of thinking, that's definitely a second dwelling. So there's a bit to think about there. And it, it, it does it does fall on a purchaser at that time, doesn't it, to, to actually think about how am I going to use it and and um, secondly, how is anyone after me going to use it and is this um, going to be available for me to put mum and dad in the backyard? Caveat emptor is uh, never more relevant, I think, when it comes to this sort of thing. No, I, I think that's right. And again, it's, it's information as power, isn't it? Um, yep. uh, leading up to um, the sale and again, it's not enough simply to be aware of the covenant. You, it's important for buyers really to be aware of what the impact of it would be. What it means. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Yep. All right. Yep. That's about it for today. Now, Justin, if people want to get hold of you, what's the best way in terms of websites, phone numbers, that sort of thing for your business at Henderson & Ball? Yes, um, Jared, thank you. Um, so our website is hendersonball.com.au. Uh, and our phone number, usually the best way to get a hold of us, uh, 92618000 or the easiest email address is frontdesk at hendersonball.com.au. Any of those methods will be able to uh, to get in contact. Perfect. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you joining me today. It's been fantastic. Very insightful. I know um, that will be very useful for, for many of our clients. Good, Jared. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Now, that's been episode 57 of the Rewarding Property Decisions podcast. As always, feel free to share it far and wide with friends, family, and colleagues. Um, and if you would like to get further information on making rewarding property decisions, please visit our website, wakeland.com.au, and we wish you all the best with your property decisions. 